This is the Retirement Lifestyle Advocates radio program. I am your host, Dennis Tubergen. Glad you decided to tune in once again today. Hey, if you're a new listener, welcome. This is where we talk about what's going on today in finance, in the financial markets, and in the economy. And we look at those through the lens of history. And I want to do that in this first segment today uh, because your history teacher was right. Those who don't study history are doomed to repeat it. And it appears, at least from my opinion and from the opinion of some of the guests here I have on the program, that we are on the road to repeating history. That'll be my topic of this first segment Then in the second and third segments of today's program, I'll be joined by Mr. Jeffrey Tucker. Uh, Jeffrey Tucker is the editorial director for the American Institute for Economic Research. He has a brand new book out we'll talk to him about, the title, Liberty or Lockdown. Um, I think that uh, given that there's uh, been some uh, changes of opinion um, as to the reaction and response to the COVID-19 situation that uh, certainly getting Jeffrey's perspective today um, will be interesting and I believe helpful. Before I get to my topic, though, I want to remind you that if you have not yet downloaded the Retirement Lifestyle Advocates app, you can go to retirementlifestyleadvocates.com and there are instructions there as to how to download the app. Uh, The app now can be downloaded more simply. We are working on making some additional revisions to make it super easy to download. But when you go download the app, you will get access to a bunch of free resources that are designed to be helpful. Um, In fact, what I'm going to talk to you about here in this segment, I talked about on my update webinar with clients that is available through the app this past week. You also, via the app, will be able to get the podcast that I produce every week, and you will also be able to get the free Portfolio Watch newsletter that is also distributed every week. So go to retirementlifestyleadvocates.com, download the app if you've not already done so. You know, it's no secret that the Federal Reserve, the Central Bank of the United States, and if you're a new listener... The Federal Reserve is a private group. It's a private group of bankers. And back in 1913, in December to be exact, the United States thought it made sense to give control of monetary policy to private bankers. So the Federal Reserve, since March of this year, has created literally out of thin air more than $3 trillion. And just to put that into perspective, That's the total amount of money that was created from 2008 to 2020, and it happened this year in a matter of months. Now, there are a number of side effects that you're likely going to see as a result of money printing, and in particular, continued money printing, and we've discussed those on past programs. As we talk about where I want to go in this segment, the words of the late economist Herbert Stein come to mind. Mr. Stein very profoundly and simply stated that if something cannot go on forever, it will stop. Isn't that profound? Well, that's certainly true 
of money creation as well. You can't simply print forever, and there are a number of historical examples, one of which we'll talk about today in this segment. Now, when the money printing stops, which it will, we have to have a reset. Now, that reset can either be reactive or it can be proactive. Now, there are a number of recent examples of reactive resets. We've talked about Zimbabwe here on the program. Zimbabwe, uh, under the leadership of Mugabe, actually abandoned the Zimbabwe dollar and adopted U.S. dollars instead once total confidence in the currency was lost. That is a reactive reset. The same thing happened in Weimar, Germany. The same thing happened during the Roman Empire. And although the way the currency was debased, although the way the money printing occurred changed slightly based on the type of currency that was in use at the time, the end result is they all look very much alike. Now, if we go back 300 years, there was a gentleman by the name of John Law a Scotsman who was the central banker of France. This was in the early 1700s, and the story as to how John Law became France's central banker is an interesting side note as well that I do not have time to talk about in this segment. But he was appointed to this position by the regent of France, who was actually in charge of running the country of France after Louis XIV died and Louis XV took over. And when Louis XV took over, he was seven years old. And, of course, we couldn't have a seven-year-old running the country, although it may be a worthy experiment. But I digress. At that time, France was deeply in debt, and Louis XIV was a very popular king. He was very popular because he gave away a lot of free stuff And in the process of giving away free stuff to the population, which certainly led to his popularity, it created a lot of debt. Well, at the time, coins containing precious metal were being used as currency. And Louis XIV died. John Law is now in charge. And the regent and John Law had to figure out how to pay down this debt. And they have the same three choices, or had the same three choices, I should say, in the early 1700s as politicians have today. They can raise taxes, they can cut spending, or they can print money. But when the debt numbers get too big, when it's impossible to pay down the debt by raising taxes, and cutting spending would be extremely draconian and politically unpopular, Politicians historically have always resorted to the same choice, and that is printing currency. And that's exactly what happened in France in the early 1700s under John Law. Now, they didn't create money digitally then like we do today. What they did was debase the coinage, and this was not a new idea. This is an idea they borrowed from the Roman Empire. Newly minted coins contained precious metal content that was 20% less than coins minted previously. Well, the French citizens were no dummies. They decided to hoard the coins, so the government made hoarding the coins illegal. 
Well, John Law had a great idea. He said, let's issue some paper money, some paper notes, and guarantee that this paper money could be exchanged at any time for the coins containing precious metals. This really happened in the United States with silver certificates. That ended back in the late 60s, and the gold backing of the dollar ended in 71. So this all happened about 50 years ago here. Well, paper money is a lot easier to use than coins, so people began to use the paper money, and it didn't take uh, long for most of the coins to come out of circulation. So eventually, the paper currency was all that circulated. Well, law decided to continue to print money, and it was a boom for a period of time. Luxury items were flying off the shelf. Real estate prices were booming because money printing does create the illusion of prosperity. But as always happens, a tipping point was reached. Some of the French citizens began to lose confidence in the paper money, and eventually the financial system collapsed. Now, there were a number of events that took place, but the bottom line is this. That is a reactionary reset. And 100% of the time, historically, from my research, whenever the reset occurs, tangible assets are good things to own. And if you've not yet downloaded the app, I would encourage you to do that because there's a lot of resources there that can help you. If you're just joining me, go to retirementlifestyleadvocates.com and download the app. Um, you'll get more information about adding tangible assets to your portfolio and see if it might be right for you. I will be back after these words with Jeffrey Tucker. Welcome back to RLA Radio. I am your host, Dennis Tuberg, and joining me on today's program is returning guest, Mr. Jeffrey Tucker. Uh, Jeffrey is the editorial director for the American Institute for Economic Research He is also a prolific author with uh, really too many titles to mention in a brief introduction. However, his most recent book is titled Liberty or Lockdown. It was just released about three weeks ago. And Jeffrey, welcome to the program. Hey, thanks so much for having me. So Jeffrey, tell us about your book, um, Liberty, Liberty or Lockdown, and congratulations on another terrific book. Well, I'd rather there be not lockdowns than write a book, but <laughs> uh, if I had a trade, I'd, 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 I'd be glad to get rid of my book and get back um, normal rights and freedoms like we had in January. I, I'm absolutely astonished to be living in the times in which we live. I never thought that in the United States we would suddenly short shut down by uh, force uh, Broadway, churches, movies sports, travel, schools, uh, much less impose house arrests on uh, most people and uh, enforce it with criminal penalties. If you told me that in January, I would have thought you were out of your mind. So it's a bit of a shock, and um, I hope you learn a lesson from it, which is, if I was going to summarize my lesson, it would be never do it again. So, Jeffrey, when you when you look at just how this whole year has evolved, we'll look at it just from a health perspective. Uh, even the uh, WHO recently came out and said, you know, these lockdowns were a mistake. I mean, is that that's really not um, unanimous, but it's 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 getting pretty close. So, why do we still have all these restrictions in many states, including the state in which I live, Michigan? 
Dennis, I think part of it is that the politicians are afraid to admit that they made a mistake. And they think that if um, they if 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 they unlock down, then it's an implicit admission that what they did was wrong. And the kids have suffered, the poor have suffered, the working class has suffered, everybody's in shock. People, according to politicians, they think that the people need to believe it was for some good reason. And if they just suddenly unlock everything, it would be uh, an implicit admission that they made a mistake. And there's something funny about politicians. You know, most of us make mistakes in life, and we're, in, we're encouraged not to, uh, we're, we're encouraged to admit it. You know, and move on, I think. That's hard, but we do. For some reason, that seems to be against the constitution of politicians. So they keep doubling down with fake fake science and that sort of thing to try to justify it. But it's it's getting very difficult now. The Great Branson Declaration, which took place in my, uh, in my offices here uh, just uh, last weekend, actually. Isn't it? Incredibly. Um, uh, you know, featured, uh, you know, 8,000 scientists led, led by, uh, by the three top epidemiologists in the world, uh, Jay Bhattacharya, Sunetra Gupta, and Martin Kudorf, um, saying that these lockdowns were a huge mistake. We need to go back within our normal life again. And that's what pushed the World Health Organization to change its mind. So, Jeffrey, when you look at you know just historical precedent, and I know you're a, a student of history, um, has anything like this ever happened before, to your knowledge? Nothing uh, even close to this has ever happened before. We've had terrible calamities in world history, but they've always been more or less localized or regionalized, but never a global calamity on this level. Universal lockdowns and uh, nothing like this has ever happened. This is not normal. It's completely unprecedented. And the people claim who claim that it hadn't happened because the, the virus is so bad, uh, well, even if the virus were as bad as they're saying, which it turns out they're not, the average age of death is, is 82 with 2.6 comorbidities. Only 95% of the people who have died with COVID actually died from COVID uh, exclusively. Um, and so it's far less, far, far, far less lethal than uh, the seasonal flu for, for healthy people under the age of uh, 60. Um, uh, nothing like this has ever happened. And I think... Part of, part of what my book does is try to figure out exactly why this happened. As, as, as you might imagine, the answer is, is complicated because it's such a disaster that it, it's not just one reason, you know. Um, there, it was a confluence of events uh, that came together over the course of uh, 15 years, I would say, that finally led to it. And the lockdowners were organized and the, and, and the rest of us weren't. And it just took us by surprise. I think a lot of people probably in uh, in many places in Michigan around the country are just now waking up to what what actually happened uh, to us and that it was completely futile and all for naught and all the destruction and suffering we've under under undergone has been for no reason whatsoever. Lockdowns didn't save a single life, not one. You know, Jeffrey, and it, it's interesting. I think how the media has covered uh, this entire uh, coronavirus situation going all the way back to January. Um, how would you characterize the way that most media has covered this this whole uh, event as it's played out? It's completely shocking. You know, February 27th, the New York Times 
did a podcast uh, in which they predicted 6.6 million Americans would die unless we're locked down. That day, I realized something had gone very wrong because I'm a big fan of the New York Times. I love that podcast. And I realized something had gone very, very wrong. And um, so I shut it down. I just didn't want to hear this nonsense anymore. But I was bracing myself for lockdowns as a result of that day because I know how the American media works. What they do is I follow the New York Times. The New York Times was hysterical, ghastly, and awful on the subject. So everybody just followed in line, and the, the media has cheered the lockdowns all along. And partially the reason is the media benefits from lockdowns. Um, and also they're filled with ignorant reporters who know absolutely nothing about uh, immunology or viruses. And also uh, there's a strange way in which this disease has been politicized. You know, I saw a poll the other day asking uh, Republicans, do you, are you ready to get back to regular life? And uh, 60% said yes. Uh, uh, Ask Democrats and 2% said yes. So there's a huge uh, political uh, agenda behind these lockdowns, which is deeply tragic. And to me, it explains, that shows why we should never, ever turn over disease mitigation to politicians. Well, I certainly would uh, second that motion. Can we dig into that a little bit more, the, the, the political gap, if you will? Because, you know, the, the, that gap, I think, uh, particularly between rabid Republicans and rabid Democrats has, uh, has never been greater. Um, can you elaborate a little bit as to why you think that it's 2% of the Democrats that are ready to get back to you know, normal everyday life and 60% of Republicans. To what do you attribute that big gap? I, I, you know, it's a little bit complicated. Um, but I think it has something to do with with uh, the fact that the Democrats were getting desperate to defeat Trump. They tried the Russia thing. It didn't work. They tried the Ukraine impeachment thing. It didn't work. Uh, and this was their third chance. So let's uh, let's talk a little bit about how you see things playing out moving ahead. I mean, when, when, and, and this relates to to your book as well. And I should mention, if you're just joining us, I'm chatting today with Mr. Jeffrey Tucker. Jeffrey is the editorial director for the American Institute of Economic Research. He is also the author of the newly released book Liberty or Lockdown. So. Moving ahead, uh, it, it seems that you know lockdowns are still being discussed as a way to prevent the spread of COVID-19. Um, if these things don't work, why are they still being considered, not just in the United States and certain states, but all around the world? It has to do with something like an intuition. People think that a disease is spread by people, and if we just keep people apart, then we'll, uh, it will stop, stop the disease. The problem is that there's no end game. You know, even if that were true, and there's actually no evidence that that's actually true, because it turns out you can't have a society without people being around each other, um, without showing each other each other's you know faces and that sort of thing. Uh, we've evolved over a million years to uh, integrate viruses into our human community, and we know how that works, and we know what to do about it. Um, so this is a, a kind of a medieval attitude towards disease. That's one thing. Uh, the politicians are afraid to ad admit error. There also is a kind of a, I think it's und undeniable that there's a kind of a get Trump sort of feeling behind these lockdowns, you know, that the more misery that they can promote, uh, the more people are going to want to vote for some kind of change. Um, but the problem is, 
that's not that's actually not working out very well either because the Democrats are favoring lockdowns and and uh, uh, I'm not a very political person but it seems to me that that uh, based on what I've heard you know voting for the Democratic Party right now means that you perpetuate the misery not get rid of it so I'm not sure it's going to work for them politically you know I'm not a political expert but I, I I'm not seeing the evidence um, I, I see tens of thousands of people clamoring to go to Republican rallies and 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 Democrats having to pay people to be there so I'm just not sure. It looks like a repeat of 2016 to me. There's going to be hell to pay, Dennis. There is going to be. We cannot, as a country, we have a constitution, we have a bill of rights. This is a country, uh, land of the free, home of the brave. And it's not uh, uh, hospitable to lockdowns. This is not China. China, which, by the way, is entirely open. China, which has state propaganda on the television and the radio right now, telling people to gather in groups, telling people to go to the movies, telling people to go to the malls. They're trying to get people out and about uh, and unafraid of the disease. Our country is almost completely the opposite. When Trump said we need to learn to live with the virus, get brave, get bold, get get immunity, he was jeered down and even had his tweets deleted by Twitter. So we've got now the big tech companies censoring the government. Did you ever imagine a time when it would be like that? I always got censorship with government government uh, 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 censoring uh, uh, tech companies. I didn't expect it to be the opposite. So when you, when you look at the economic impact of lockdowns, and I'm sure you talk about it in your book, uh, how do you see things playing out from here? Are you among those that think we're going to have a V-shaped recovery, an L-shaped recovery, a K-shaped recovery? How do you, how do you see things playing out moving ahead? Dennis, a lot appears in what we do right now. If we had ended these lockdowns, uh, back, say, first week of April, I would have expected that the free market would have bounced back really, really quickly. But dragging on all this time, I think it's been devastating. More than 100,000 businesses by now, 150,000 businesses have been closed. Broadway is devastated. The arts, museums are shutting down. Uh, kids are, are, are ruined. There's, we've lost, Dennis, we've lost confidence. And investment and prosperity is all about confidence in the future. That seems to have gone away because now people don't know anymore if their businesses are going to be taken away from them. In New York, uh, even now, you know, two-thirds of the bars have shut. I, I can't believe I'm saying these things to you, by the way. Um, the restaurants, you still can't go have indoor dining because the politicians know where the virus is and they think it's somehow indoors on the table. You know? Uh, <laughs> um, I, uh, international trade has been devastated. Supply chain shattered. Uh, the hospitality industry ruined. Embassies and consulates around the world are still closed. Uh, uh, you can't go to Paris. Paris can't come to us. I don't see how we're not going to enter into a huge depression, even if we open up uh, right now. And I think the consequences are very, very far-reaching. Monetary policy, fiscal policy, as I say, confidence in the future, investor confidence in the future. I don't know how this stuff comes back. I think a lot depends on if we get a universal uh, apology from all politicians and bureaucrats and public health officials tomorrow where they say this is a huge disaster will never happen again i think we could come back from it lacking that i'm not so sure well we're chatting today with mr jeffrey tucker he is the editorial director for the american institute for economic research his most recent book is liberty or lockdown and i'll continue my conversation with jeffrey when rla radio returns stay with us I am Dennis Tuberg, and you are listening to RLA Radio. I'm chatting today with Mr. Jeffrey Tucker. 
Jeffrey is the author of the newly released book, Liberty or Lockdown, and he is also the editorial director for the American Institute for Economic Research. And uh, Jeffrey, before we jump back in, for our listeners maybe that are not familiar with the American Institute Institute for Economic Research, can you uh, just fill them in a bit on uh, what you guys do? Sure. We were founded in 1933 to um, support and research functioning markets and and to uh, do deeper research independent of academia and government and large corporate interests. That's our, our core, that's our mission, and we've been doing it for 87 years. So right now, actually, Dennis, it's an extraordinary thing. I'm in dealing with this constantly. Last weekend, we had uh, several three three top uh, epidemiological science scientists in house and recorded some videos, and they released a statement about it. And there's a big lobby out there for lockdowns, and they've been coming after us relentlessly on Wikipedia, uh, left-wing news, all over the place. They claim that we're a right-wing, coke-funded outfit that uh, uh, is is corrupt. We want old people to die so we can take their money. I mean, the, the, the amount of smears and attacks on the American Institute for Economic Research, which has 87 years of of integrity and research and and uh, in economics behind it uh, is absolutely shocking. And and on the internet, you can say anything you want. But you know, I'm dealing with this stuff all weekend. I would like to have a couple of days off, even an hour off, every once in a while. But nope, can't do it because the smears are coming in incredibly. And it's because the American Institute for Economic Research was uh, influential in getting the World Health Organization to change its policies from lockdown to uh, freedom. And and the lockdowners are furious at us. And I tell you, the the attacks have just begun, um, and it's really tragic and and pointless. And and you know this this the situation when 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 the mob comes after you, like it's coming after us right now, you really don't know what to do. You just have to kind of keep keep telling the truth and and get strong and get louder. And that's what we're doing. So Jeffrey, when 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 the World Health Organization changes its position, what groups or individuals or both comprise the group that you call lockdowners? That that would be an interesting question, in my view. Well, you know that is a, it is a fascinating question, and and I have to tell you, uh, I myself have gotten an education on this. So Dennis, you know that the uh, Academy, uh, by by which I mean universities and colleges, have been drifting left for quite some time, decades really. But over the last 10 to 15 years, we've seen the rise of intersectionality, uh, class theory, and critical theory, and basically uh, left-wing Marxism and the social uh, sciences and humanities to the point that they have something like an 80 to 90 percent domination, meaning that uh, the students who get a, go to school get fed uh, non-stop propaganda in these in these disciplines, and then some select few of those go on to get their, uh, their graduate degrees and then PhDs and go back into teaching, and and so then they keep feeding on each other and it's getting worse and worse and worse. What's remarkable is that they've been trying over the last. Uh, 10 years to figure out some way to make inroads into science, into science, into natural science, and 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 into uh, other disciplines, so they can bring their Marxist outlook to them. It turns out that uh, the idea of public health uh, is is a kind of bridge between the uh, uh, humanities, 
and or sociology and the uh, hard sciences. So, so if you get a degree in something like, like there's a big commentator on television right now, she got a degree in museum anthropology and she's head of public health at the University of Edinburgh. And so she's all over the press in the EU speaking about scientific questions, but she knows nothing about science, never studied it, doesn't care anything about it. She's basically a, an agenda-driven Marxist. There's another guy uh, who's been attacking us recently who uh, is a, a journalist who got his PhD in political economy or political uh, science, but imagines himself to be a public health expert, again, never having taken a class in medicine or sciences at all. And uh, uh, he's got a political agenda. So all these people have a political agenda, and, and they're, 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 they're passing themselves off as public health experts, and the media is glad to give them a platform. What they want is a shutdown of capitalism, and a shutdown of freedom, and uh, a closing of travel, the end of industrial civilization. I'm not exaggerating. It's what they want. And lockdowns for them are, are the tool to get it. You recall that before the lockdowns began, we, had, we were dealing with this thing called the Green New Deal. The Green New Deal, imagine that you know, AOC, this, uh, this uh, congressperson, um, was, was promoting uh, the abolition of, of air travel uh, because it used fossil fuels. She wanted to shut down uh, trains and cars and, and, and go back to some sort of primitive lifestyle. And um, now she's getting her way. Lockdowns mean she gets her way. And it's the same thing, I must tell you, with a certain uh, head of National Institutes of Health, Anthony Fauci, who just three weeks ago wrote an article saying we're going to have to end all uh, mass sporting events, cities. He, he doesn't think you should be allowed to own pets, dogs and cats. He's coming for your uh, kitties. And, and this is, these people are crazy people. They're crazy people, and, but they're very well organized. And, uh, you know, I knew they were out there. I wrote about them 15 years ago. But I never imagined they would get that critical balance of power in order to actually implement this nightmare dystopia that they put us uh, uh, under uh, today. And I think it was just a combination of events. It was, it was the rise of Marxism and critical theory and the humanities bleeding over to the natural sciences through public health combined with a politically driven a political class that really wants to get Trump and, and increase misery on the American people so we'll vote him out of office. Um, and then also uh, tech companies and media companies that are frankly benefiting from, uh, from lockdowns at the expense of the poor and middle class and, and uh, legacy businesses. Yeah, and that's that fact is undisputable for sure. So let me shift gears a minute, Jeffrey, because uh, in the time we have left, I want to talk a little bit of mon about monetary policy, which we started to talk about at the end of the first segment. You know, the Fed this year, in response to all this, has printed like over three trillion dollars. Uh, that that's the stuff of which banana republics are made. I think that. Uh, the operating deficit was uh, what 3.3 trillion this year. Um, how do you see this monetary policy response affecting our average listener moving ahead? Uh, the Federal Reserve, if we stop uh, locking down, which I think we're going to, we very well may. I think Trump's going to win, and I think we're going to end all lockdowns by by the holidays. If that happens, the Fed needs to get busy and uh, get a lot of sponges out to top up all this liquidity or else we're going to be facing uh, a tremendous problem. Uh, the, the difficulty is they may not want to top up all this liquidity because I think we're facing a, a serious, serious, uh, it's, it's 
I think it's coming, a massive liquidation of real estate in large cities like, like New York, San Francisco, Los Angeles, Denver, uh, uh, Chicago. I think it's going to be a, a disaster uh, because we're seeing tremendous demographic. Again, Dennis, as I'm talking to you, I almost can't believe I'm saying these things. Do you understand what I mean? <laughs> the cell thing seems like a nightmare. But we're seeing uh, gigantic population movements out of these large cities uh, into the suburbs. And that's why the real estate markets are so hot right now. Uh, not because uh, uh, people are buying into cities because they're feeling prosperous, because they're definitely trying to sell their properties out of cities and move into the countryside, but the properties aren't selling uh, because, and, and that's why you're not seeing prices press because uh, uh, depressed prices are, are final prices, right? But, but, but real estate that's on sale that's not selling uh, is not going to register as deflation. Um, but uh, so the liquidation of, of real estate is going to be uh, a huge issue in the first quarter of next year. And the Fed is going to, would have to be pretty brave to sop off uh, up all this liquidity in the midst of a real estate crisis which I think we're going to see in the first half of next year. So do you think that inflation is imminent, or at least in things? I mean, we're already seeing food price inflation, bicycles, used car prices, and yet we're seeing uh, you know, deflation. Obviously, uh, we talked about hospitality and travel and, and, and a lot of that, a lot of those industries. Mm-hmm. How, yeah. how do you see this whole inflation, deflation yeah. thing playing out? Uh, well, Dennis, I think... Thank you for asking this question. I think we need to upgrade our understanding of inflation. In the past, we used to think of an inflation, inflation as being just an index number. You take rising prices, declining prices, combine them into one thing and spit out a number. The world's gotten a little more complicated. We're going to see uh, dramatic price increases in some sectors and then uh, deflationary pressure in another. And it's almost at this point pointless to try to aggregate those into a single number that we call inflation. I think we have to look at... Uh, uh, the regular uh, everyday uh, uh, price index is the American Institute for Economic Research calculates its own thing called the everyday price index. That's something to watch, not the CPI. And then uh, and and to disaggregate it, you know. So you, you look at consumer goods on one hand, real estate on the other, technology on the other. We're going to see opposite uh, trends in opposite directions. Lots of businesses rising up, other businesses collapsing. Um, it's going to be very difficult to follow, but I. I think we're in for a very, very seriously rough time of it. Uh, professions are changing. People are bailing out of the arts, out of hospitality, and trying to get into other uh, sectors of life. Like um, the, the amount of disruption that these um, lockdowns have, have caused is, is going to lead to a huge uh, d- disaster in the future. You know, Dennis, sometimes I think, you know, you're very sophisticated uh, from an economic point of view. You love economics, you study that, you, you know it, but that's not true for a vast number of intellectuals, and it's not true for a, 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 a large part of the, of the American public. I think what's about to happen is we're going to get a big, fat lesson in economics, and I just hope uh, we learn something from it and don't forget it for the future. Well, that is a good place to end it. My guest today has been Mr. Jeffrey Tucker. I would encourage you to check out his new book, Liberty or Lockdown. I found it on Amazon. He is the editorial director for the American Institute for Economic Research. And, Jeffrey, always a pleasure to catch up with you. I can't believe how fast a 24-minute interview goes, and I would love to have you back down the road. Thank you, Dennis. Uh, You take care, my friend, and hang in there.
Hey, you do the same. We will return after these words. You are listening to RLA Radio. I'm your host, Dennis Tubergen. Glad you decided to listen in today, and thanks again to Jeffrey Tucker for joining us on today's program. You know, in the first segment of today's program, I talked about the fact that the Federal Reserve, and not just the Federal Reserve, but many other central banks around the world, are engaging in money creation. The Fed calls it quantitative easing, but essentially it's money creation. And already this year in 2020, the Fed has created as much money as they did from 2008 to 2020. So this money creation is accelerating. And in the first segment, I repeated the words of economist Herbert Stein, who said, if something cannot go on forever, it will stop. Well, money printing, history teaches us, always stops, and it stops either reactively or proactively. Now, in this segment, I just want to share with you some numbers. And I ran across a chart about a week ago when I was putting together a client update webinar. And incidentally, if you don't yet have the Your RLA app, go to Retirement Lifestyle Advocates and download the app. Uh, You can actually get access to and see this chart that I am referring to. Well, the chart really gave us some perspective on world asset and debt levels. How big are certain markets? How much money actually exists? And the biggest market by far, I mean by a long shot, a long ways, was the derivative market. According to the Bank of International Settlements, the derivative market was approaching $560 trillion at the end of 2019, and there are many reputable sources out there that say the number is closer to $1 quadrillion. Now, some of you listening to this may say, what is a derivative and how is it going to affect me? Well, a derivative is essentially a bet between banks. Now, a derivative, when you, when you define the word, that is a, a security that gets its value from or has a value that is derived from another security. That's where the name derivative comes from. But in this context, it's really a bet between banks. And banks will issue credit default swaps, which are a derivative. And basically, a credit default swap is an insurance policy between banks. Now, it's important to note this is an unregulated and unreserved insurance policy. Much of the bailout that occurred back in 2008 to the financial system, to the banks, was due to derivatives that weren't backed up. Well, that problem that cast the financial system into turmoil and caused then Treasury Secretary Henry Paulson to get on television and say, unless I get a big pile of money by noon today, the financial system as we know it will fail. Well, that whole problem has gotten worse. And a quadrillion dollars is huge exposure, assuming that number is correct. Now, when I throw out the term a quadrillion dollars, that is a number that's very hard to wrap your head around. So let me try to give you an illustration that will put it into perspective. Let's start with a trillion dollars. That's about one-twenty-seventh of the national debt. 
If you have $1 bills and stack them the thin way, you know, flat side on flat side on flat side, and you were to stack $1 trillion $1 bills, the pile of $1 bills that you would have would be 67,866 miles tall. That's a trillion dollars. That's a quarter of the way to the moon. Well, U.S. government debt is 27 times that. Now, if you take a look at a quadrillion dollars, a quadrillion dollars is a thousand trillion. If we take the same stack of $1 bills, we now have a stack of $1 bills that is 67,866 miles tall. Now, the distance between the Earth and the Sun is known as an astronomical unit, and it's about 93 million miles, so a quadrillion dollars is 75% of an astronomical unit, if you can get your head around that. Now, taking a look at other global debt that exists, that's approaching $300 trillion. So between global debt and derivatives, if it all hit the proverbial fan, we have about a $1.3 quadrillion problem. The Fed's balance sheet is $7 trillion. So the bottom line is this. When you start to compare those numbers, it's going to be at some point impossible to create enough money to solve the problem And you'll reach a tipping point at some point prior to creating that much money where the populace says, hey, wait a minute, maybe I'd be better off not holding this currency. I might be better off in something tangible. History teaches us that often occurs. Now, when we look at a tangible asset market, let's start with the gold market. The World Gold Council says that if you add up the value of all the gold that exists in the world at today's prices, you have somewhere between 10 and $11 trillion worth of gold. If you add up all the silver that exists, it is by comparison a tiny market, only about $44 billion. Cryptocurrencies are now about five times the size of the silver market, about $244 billion. So by comparison, very, very small markets. Now let's take a look at just paper asset markets. The total value of stocks, about $100 trillion. The total value of bonds around the world, about $250 trillion. The total value of real estate around the world, about another $250 trillion. So those three markets are about $600 trillion. Let's just assume that folks that own those assets, stocks, bonds, and real estate, decide they want to have another 2% of their portfolio in metals. Well, 2% of $600 trillion is $12 trillion. And that's $12 trillion moving into a total combined market that is less than $11 trillion. That, wa- that is why I believe that many folks should consider adding tangible assets to their portfolio. The writing, to me, 
is on the wall. Now, you want to make sure it's right for you, and that's why we have developed the Your RLA app, the Your Retirement Lifestyle Advocates app. You can download the app and get a lot of free resources. All you have to do to get the app is visit our website at retirementlifestyleadvocates.com. The website, again, is retirementlifestyleadvocates.com. That will give you access also to the chart that I just talked about. Uh, It will get you our weekly newsletter as well as the podcast and access to our client webinar. And all that can be replayed uh, whenever you'd like. So just go download the app at retirementlifestyleadvocates.com and you'll get access to all those resources. As always, I appreciate you tuning in. Hope you got something you can use. I'll be back again next week. 